Looking for a fun way to win 25 times your money this football and basketball season? Test your skills on Prize Picks, the most exciting way to play daily fantasy sports. Just select two or more players, pick more or less on their projection for a wide variety of stats, and place your entry. It's as easy as that. If you have the skills, you can turn $10 into $250 with just a few taps. Easy gameplay, quick withdrawals, and injury insurance on your picks are what make Prize Picks the number one daily fantasy sports app. Ready to test your skills? Join the Prize Picks community of more than 7 million players who have already signed up. Right now, Prize Picks will match your first deposit up to $100. Just visit prizepicks.com/play100 and use code play100. That's code play100 at prizepicks.com/play100 for a first deposit match up to $100. Prize Picks, daily fantasy sports made easy. Welcome to Wagon Wheel. I'm Jared Kimber. Uh, we are doing the podcast where we answer questions from, from the audience. We started with the Patreon questions, of course, today. Uh, and if you have anything for Super Chats, you can put them in this room. And if it's not Super Chats, you can also um, just put in normal questions and I can try and get to those as well. Uh, please, uh, if you enjoy the podcast and all the different shows that we do, please uh, go out and like and subscribe. We've got the Jared Kipper podcast channel now. We're, we're looking to make more and more content over there, uh, but we need more subscribers. Um, so if you haven't subscribed to Jared Kipper podcast, please go and find that. But also if you're listening to this in iTunes or Spotify or whatever podcast addict, whatever, whatever your thing is, uh, please rate, review, subscribe, all those different things. They help us massively. So thank you to everyone who does, but mostly thank you to the Patreon people who pay to ask questions. Well, not always. Sometimes they pay and they don't ask questions. Sometimes they ask multiple questions. Uh, depends on their moods. But let us start with Manon, who says, is Rashid's ODI record something like Sky's that it almost feels like a fluke, uh, that they aren't doing better, will eventually return to the norm? It feels like Rashid needs to trust himself more and make a better play him instead of trying to do too much. Look, I, I just think there is a part of t20 cricket where you can't sit back and wait with rashid right and so you are even if you get a bad ball he's probably already got you into a bad physical position he's probably already beaten you once or twice and you're trying to play big shots to him t20 cricket uh, one day cricket's just a little bit different you can milk a little bit more and so it is a different skill set there's a reason why we don't see as many you know wrist spinners completely dominate one day cricket the way we do in t20 cricket and it is the it's the really ultra aggressive shots. Like if you watch a leg spinner, even if you see like a bad, you know, leg spinner in club cricket, if they're really ripping the ball and even if they bowl a full toss or a half tracker, there's still a chance of them getting a wicket. And it's because of the revolutions that they are putting on the ball. Um, and so when you're trying to play that attacking shot, obviously your head moves a little bit and you make mistakes and all those sorts of things. That's just going to happen a lot more in T20 cricket than it is in one day cricket where you're waiting a little bit more. So, uh, I haven't looked at his record, Manon, to be fair. So I don't know exactly um, what the situation is of recent times. I know, you know, he obviously dominated at the lower levels of one day internationals and maybe struggled a little bit more. Um, I didn't think he always bowled brilliantly in the last World Cup, but he has the skills to be able to do it. But it's, it's, we talk about this with batters all the time. It's exactly the same thing for the spin bowlers, right? You know, uh, or, or any bowlers. 
it, because it's a different length and because it's a different tempo, there are just little changes that you need to make. And perhaps he hasn't made them enough. But as I said, uh, I haven't seen the record enough to, um, to make big assumptions on it. Christopher says, narrative around the 100 is that it isn't designed for certain cricket fans, such as members, badges, and existing fans who go regularly. Is that acceptable? You wouldn't see that in the Premier League, NFL, and the NBA. Um, you'd kind of do. I, this is the interesting thing about the Big Bash and the 100 specifically, is that they're just a little bit more honest. M- most sporting leagues are set up for, and football's a little bit different. So the NFL and Premier League, you could certainly take those out. But most sporting leagues are set up for casual fans because chances are you don't have enough hardcore fans to be able to make your money. Casual fans, are they're the, they're the dream of any league or team or you know, um, nation, really. It's you know how many of those can you come in? You hope that you can transfer some of them to hardcore fans. But most things are actually not set up for hardcore uh, fans of that particular sport because they're going to come anyway because they love the sport. And so what the 100 has done is it's weirdly a little bit more honest with that, but also because they're so honest with that, it makes them look a little bit stupid at times. So I, I think, and also part of that is if you're building a new sport from scratch, you would it's very hard for you to say, well, we're going to build it on existing fans because there wasn't existing fans of any of these teams, right? They did not exist before. Um, they were non-existent fans. <laughs> and so, you you know, I think because of it's a new league and it's a little bit different, but I think even if you look back at the IPL, again, you know, it was made to be slightly more for casual fans than anything else. What I would say is that you do eventually get to a point in these um, situations and, you know, someone who's done this for a very long time and and watch new leagues and new things crop up every now and again. The, the one thing I would argue is that the hardcore fans actually, their excitement um, and their fanaticism does build a lot of what the casual fans are interested in. So especially in this social media age, but it was even beforehand, the old water cooler age. Um, but, but in the social media age of literally having a situation where your friends are tweeting or you know, on threads or putting TikToks out about cricket more often is more important. That is generally going to be hardcore fans. So you do have to factor them in. And I think in in the hundreds case, they've probably gone too far. But if you go to an NBA game, they just pump music um, all the way through because they're terrified that you're going to be bored. Every break and play, even if it's like three minutes, there's someone out on the floor dancing or throwing a T-shirt or or trying to get a half-court shot in. Like the NBA is completely set up for casual fans and the basketball fans just have to, you know, enjoy the game. Will says, uh, what would a team need uh, to succeed in ODI cricket with ultra-aggressive bowling tactics? Um, We're going to let you score at eight and over because we back ourselves to get you all out in 30 overs. I just don't think there's that exists, Will, because I don't think the bowlers exist. Um, I, I... it's partly the balls as well. So those balls by the 12th over mark are not really going to be helping spinners or pace bowlers. Uh, They will not swing. They generally don't um, seem, you get a little bit of spin, but you will, uh, the ball would have already started to get soft because they're pathetic balls. If you were doing this with a red ball scene, then yeah, perhaps you could pick the five best strike bowlers. But I would say like what teams in the world ever have five strike bowlers that you would say would be able to regularly bowl teams out in 30 overs. I don't think those kinds of bowlers really exist. 
um, in, in the wild. So even if you got them another ball, I can't see how that would be the case. Um, I get the theory behind it. So like if you had, this is the thing, I will, even if you look at the best strike bowlers in one day cricket, it's actually, I think you'd be shocked at sort of how little they strike. You know, so one thing I was always looking for, of course, is the the T20 um, strike bowlers in in the in the power play because that's the most important time to strike. But when you do go and have a look at it, you you actually don't see that many players who are um, consistently um, taking wickets at like an average of eighteen or nineteen because once they get good, teams start to stop attacking them right and and they do change the way they play and i think because of that you know strike bowlers don't exist as much in one day cricket as you would think what you end up getting is maybe you've got a bowler who can strike with a brand new ball but then he doesn't strike very well in the middle and then you've got another bowler who might be a really good striker um at the end uh, but doesn't have the ability to actually um what take early wickets all that much and so i do think that's a very very different um situation uh to be in. i just want to have a look at the top 100 wicket takers of all time in odi cricket just to see if i can prove my point here he says um yeah strike rate here so you've got if you take out some of the um older bowlers like lamachane who obviously hasn't bowled to as many great players um, Mendes, Rashid, uh, uh, Mendes, who was a mystery spinner and then disappeared. Uh, Rashid Khan, again, bowled. So, so the best strike bowlers of all time are Stark, Muhammad Shami, Trent Bolt, Mustafiza, Shane Bond, Brett Lee, Matt Henry, right? Those are the guys in the history of ODI cricket who take two wickets per innings. And really, what you are looking for is five of them, right? Because you want 10 wickets. Well, you want actually even more than that, don't you? So you can see here, even the, the most attacking players of all time, now, as, I think as you've rightly pointed out, they're not going all out to attack at the moment. But I really don't think there are a bunch of bowlers out there who have the ability to suddenly up that um, to a certain level because there just aren't that many bowlers who consistently strike in one-day internationals. It's a really interesting question, though. Uh, Aditya says, in last week's Uncovered podcast, you rated India higher than Pakistan when it comes to World Cup favourites. What are the factors you see that put India higher than them? Uh, the only area I think India can um, score substantially higher is spin. Certainly, I mean, that's a massive thing because the series is going to be in India, right? So um, you've got the, I would say they have three bowlers who, when all things considered, I am considering the all-round um, part of it in India, rate probably as high or if not higher than uh, Pakistan. The, the only bowler that you might use ahead of an Indian spinner might be Shadab, but I think he's kind of a third spinner slash all-rounder in that kind of side. Um, cool Deep is a much better strike bowler than him. I've said this before, Shadab's not particularly good, you know, a strike bowler in, in one-day cricket. Rizwan is the, um, the, the not Rizwan, um, Nawaz, sorry. Rizwan probably won't do very well with the ball. Um, Nawaz is not particularly good with, um, uh, you know, he's not really a frontline bowler. He's, you know, more of a, a secondary spinner slash give you a little bit of batting. So, you know, maybe at best they have the third, third best spinner and the fifth best spinner, right? And that's a big drop. It's a big drop. Um, and, it, you know, especially because this is going to be played in India. Um, then you've also got the fact that, you know, 
I, I think Jadeja has a is the strongest all round of of the spinners there. There's not a huge drop off with pace bowling. I think Pakistan's pace bowling is better, but Jasper Bumrah exists, right, and is a more constant threat all the way through. And as I've just said, Mohammed Shami is one of the best strike bowlers in one day internationals. So there's not a huge drop off there. Although Pakistan probably have more options that they can throw at that problem. Uh, Hardik Pandya it gives you seam bowling overs um, in your top six. Jadeja could give you, you know, proper frontline bowling options in your top six. So the all-rounder thing, if you're comparing that to um, Nawaz and uh, uh, Fahim, I mean, that's a big drop-off there. Batting, batting, not as much as anything else. And then the final thing is it's home conditions, right? You know, so I think from that perspective, I think that India should be on a slightly higher uh, road. The only other thing I would say is, I, I believe that India has the chance, and a lot of this is, depends on how they play, but I think India can outbat teams and outbowl teams. I don't think the way that Pakistan play one-day cricket, they traditionally try and outbat teams, so they're only giving themselves one chance of that. But the Pakistan team still a very good chance, which is, you're talking about, you know, um, the, the tiers, and if you have a look at the the odds of winning the tournament, you know, it's already starting to show you what the, uh, you know, the way that the the market is trying to look at different teams, and I, I do think that you'd be hard pressed to say that India isn't, you know, a slightly elevated side over Pakistan. Having said that, in that in that uncovered podcast, I probably I hadn't done my full research yet, so I'll be going through all this very very soon. Uh, value bet is probably Sri Lanka, by the way, if you're um, betting out there. Um, Avi says, how serious do you think Sophie Eccleston's shoulder injury is compared to other shoulder injuries? So most shoulder injuries for bowlers and spinners are, you know, from constant usage, right? So you are, uh, it's an unnatural act, right? You know, we see it with baseball pitchers, with their elbows, and, you know, with, with spinners, we see the fingers, sometimes the wrists, although not as much, um, the elbow and the shoulder. You know, you put, you're rotating the, those parts of your body, you're putting... Sh- stress on those parts of your body. Sophie Eccleston's interesting because that it's a, as far as I'm aware, and uh, my, my memory of this, it was, was a dislocation, which is not a spinner's injury. And I, I, I'm not saying spinners have never happened before. I would say that the one bowler that comes to mind instantly uh, was probably someone like Jeff Thompson, who obviously injured his shoulder um, and was never quite the same kind of bowler afterwards, but he started a professional career didn't disappear or anything um i can't think of a spin bowler who's dislocated their shoulder I'm not to say that that has never happened before i would think that is a very bad injury for a spin bowler to have i'm trying to think if i think it's how i think it would be worse for a finger spinner but i'd need to talk to some of my finger spin um nerds to see if that is the case um i don't think it means the end because we don't know how bad the dislocation was or um, how it will affect her and everything else. Um, but off the top of my head, I would say that's a very bad injury. But I think it's very different than, say, Graham Swan's elbow um, is a perfect uh, a perfect example or Shane Warne's finger or those sorts of things, which is just overuse. And that those things are probably never going to come back to the same way that they were before. And that's always going to be have to be something that the bowlers are going to have to deal with, whether they bowl within themselves or whatever that may be. Eccleston's may not be like that. So it may be separate um, from sort of traditional spinners' injuries in that way. Will says, how do you envisage a post-Stokes England doing, uh, given how his body looks at the moment? I doubt he has long left. I mean, that looks very fair. 
Uh, who are some other figures that have had as significant an impact on the team and what happened after they retired? Look, it, it, it all depends on what you have coming up, right? Like Garfield Sobers, when is Garfield Sobers' last test? Uh, there's no way to replace Garfield Sobers. And so when Garfield Sobers uh, leaves, West Indies haven't really had another all-rounder anywhere near that ability. But he retires in 1974, and they get pretty good after that, right? So some of that is dumb luck and, you know, uh, Clive Lloyd changing uh, the way that they went about their cricket and everything else. But still, like, you've lost probably the most all-round, all-round great player of all time in that, you know, he gives you spin, he gives you seam, he can field anywhere, um, and he can probably bat anywhere from, you know, four to six, maybe even three. Probably could have batted at three, but um, uh, now we're getting into the sober thing. So they recover really well. But look at South Africa. South Africa haven't. And what, you know, the, the, the big problem with South Africa is that they kept trying to replace. They, South Africa did what Moneyball tells you to do. Right, it's a really, really interesting one here. South Africa basically tried to replace Callus in the ag ag aggregate, right? Of going well, what we really need to do is replace a fifth bowler. So we might not have one bowler who's strong enough to be the fifth bowler, but if we have Ryan McLaren in the side and we have Robin Peterson in the side, between the two of them on the right day, they are our fifth bowler. And then obviously neither of those can bat as good, but if we have McLaren batting at six and Peterson batting at seven or eight. Again, we have the ability to get a little bit more batting into the side and everywhere else. So what actually happens there is that Peterson and McLaren's batting is just doesn't doesn't cut the mustard. New, um, New Zealand, who are we talking about? South Africa spend ages trying to replace that kind of player, um, and they can't. And and you've seen that both of them is probably a really good example of a team trying to replace that style of player when actually perhaps what they would have been better off doing in, in that period would have been going. There isn't another all-rounder like Ian Botham. Perhaps our best choice at the moment is to go back to six batters um, and four bowlers and a wicketkeeper rather than trying to do that. Or, you know, do the Australia slash, I suppose, a little bit of England, um, uh, Zimbabwe thing of going, well, our all-rounder is actually our wicketkeeper. And then perhaps England could have, you know, done something like uh, that, but their wicketkeeper slightly higher and tried to replace Botham in that kind of way. So, yeah. You know, it was, I, I think Hadley might be another one of when Hadley disappears, New Zealand go from one of the best teams in the world to really not. For You know, they really, really struggle. I did a podcast with Danny Morrison. I, I don't think people realize how bad they were in that sort of early 90 period in test cricket, perhaps because they were good in, in one day cricket at time around that period. But they really, really struggled. So, you know, you, it, it really just depends on what your team is, you know, what the other options are. You know, if Sam Curran gets to a point where he can average what, 30 with the bat, batting at number seven or eight, um, and uh, well, probably batting at number seven, that gives him a little bit of flexibility, right? Uh, if he, if him or Wokes can't do those roles and can't take wickets consistently at home in a way, or don't make the sort of runs that they need to, well, England needs to look at a completely different plan. You know, a lot of their plans over the last seven or eight years was around having multiple all-rounders, which built, you know, meant that they had longer batting lineups and that they could be more flexible with their bowling lineups. That probably isn't going to be the case going ahead, right? So again, maybe you can't take risks if Ollie Robinson can't bowl his third spell, right? All those sorts of things come into play. And, and that's, what, that's what players like Stokes, Botham, Callis, Sobers do as all-rounders. Now, part of this, England is already in that period with Stokes. So it's already starting to happen. Um, 
Uh, and that's a really interesting thing as well. Uh, I, I can't. Maybe late stage Imran Khan, although he's still bowling, isn't he? Um, you know, even Vittori, Vittori's bowling sort of falls off a cliff a little, I think, towards the end of his career, but his batting steps up so much. Unless Stokes can pick up his batting, there's already going to be a lag even before Stokes goes. Ben says, in the build-up to the uh, the second New Zealand T20, Sky team talked about the umpires in domestic cricket having mini Hawkeye cams on them so that every domestic delivery is tracked. How can this help player development and, and selection? So I wrote about this when the BCCI were thinking about bringing Hawkeye in, and it, that was a more traditional Hawkeye for their domestic cricket, and I said it would be that that would be the ball game when it comes to data. The, the smaller teams just are not going to be able to afford to be able to do that. Uh, and the BCCI is sort of still pissing about it a little bit with that idea. I, but they, they want to fix the umpiring. That's not what you need to fix. What you need to work out is how much more information can you have about your players than anyone else is, is ever going to be able to get a, a, about them. Uh, I talked to Major League Cricket about these exact these um, Hawkeye cameras. So the umpires are wearing them on their chest. I was told about them by the guys at Intelligent Cricket. Uh, so I went straight to Major League Cricket and said, put them on all your minor league players and you're going to have more information on every cricketer coming through in America than most of the major teams ever will. Uh, they didn't end up going down that path. They went down you know, separate paths. And then, of course, county cricket has brought them in. There's a lot of problems with them. Uh, one, it's an extra job for the um, analyst, which essentially at that stage means it's a bit of a faff for them. Uh, two, the umpires don't all stand exactly straight and it causes huge problems uh, when they don't do that. Three, not all the umpires have perfectly flat bellies and because it hangs like sort of in middle of your chest sort of region, if you have a bit of a belly, it, it, it can be warped a little bit. So it's not like normal Hawkeye. You can't trust it as much as normal Hawkeye because of those reasons. Um, but it's cheaper. It could be used all around the world. Uh, the, the stuff I've seen from it, so I must have been shown it about a year ago. It was good, you know. And, and I almost think it was good in a way of my first thought was, well, maybe um, we can at least get some basic um, Hawkeye stuff from it. But it's not foolproof. I think the company, I forget the name of the company who, who, who've got their devices, they would admit that it's not foolproof yet. But if you're a cricket team and you're trying to get an advantage over everyone else, it's, it's huge. A really, really big advantage from, from that perspective. Um, I haven't read Athos's piece, actually. CS just sent it to me, but um, I didn't get a chance to read it before we came on. Uh, Rudra says, 2000s India question. Oh, hello. How would a hypothetical four-man left-arm pace attack of Zahir Khan, Api Singh, Ashish Nira, and Ifan Patan do, assuming that they're all fit in, in the same game, uh, what would be their best format? I would have thought, based on that, you'd probably be looking... Oh, I'd have to go back and look at the numbers, but I would have thought that was a one-day format um, that they would be good at. Yeah, the whole thing with the, the four... And I assume part of the reason you're asking is you would never ask this question, Rudra, if they were all right arm, right? And so I find it absolutely fascinating. I remember in Pakistan, I think Pakistan had three left-arm seamers in their, in their attack for England, and, and they certainly did it at other times. But I remember the English press going, oh, it's too many left-arm seamers. So we almost always have too many right-arm seamers. What are we talking about here? Like, it's such a weird thing to think that, oh, no, you've got too much of this other thing. If you've, if you've four of your best five bowlers are left-arm seamers and you've got an injury, you're going to pick them. It's very rare that you, your best four bowlers would be left-arm seamers at the same time. Um, so, you know, maybe Irfan. Um, not Irfan. Uh, Irfan's in this side, isn't he? Uh, maybe, who am I thinking of? Um, 
maybe there was one or two other seamers that were around that were right up. Ishan Sharma is probably the guy I'm thinking of, actually, isn't it? Uh, that, that are around at that st- that stage to, you know, slightly break that up. Um, but yeah, you, you know, I, I think that when you have two bowlers that are very similar, you might go with one extra left armor just because, you know, it give, does give your team flexibility. I think in matchup situations, you know, we see, you know, Jason Berendorf playing in the 2019 World Cup because of uh, England's problems with left arm seamers at that point. Uh, so, you know, there are some times when you might make it tactical. There are other times where it might just be, we just need, we've got, uh, we've got four really good bowlers here. One of them's left arm. Even if, you know, we think he's maybe not quite as good as the other ones, we might bring him in. It would be the same with four left arm bowlers, right? If you have four left arm seamers and you're playing in a, in an area where you need to use four seamers, you would probably look at that lineup and you would think to yourself, um, you know, what the opposition, what can they do? And then on top of that, you'd be like, for variation, is there a right arm seamer who is roughly at the level of one of these other players? That's the that's the decisions you should be making. You should never think to yourself, "Oh, we've got too much left arm seam." Um, and and generally, the best players in the world are the best players in the world because of how good they are against right arm seam. Very few, you know, it's almost impossible to find a player with a weakness for right arm seam, right? Whereas left arm seam, you're probably going to get two or three players in any lineup that are going to struggle with it, right? So, bowling too much of it is very rarely an issue. There might be some issues on certain kinds of tracks or against certain kinds of lineups, or they might be too similar to each other, which happens with right arm seamers, all those sorts of things. But just picking them, uh, I wouldn't ha- have a problem. Looking at those four, kind of think that, and I'm trying to remember back four different players' records off the top of my head, but I would have thought that that looks like a pretty good one-day lineup. Um, uh, I certainly wouldn't, you know. My memory was that India did really well with left arm seam in one day cricket over a long period of time. And I'm assuming those are the four guys that probably did the majority of the damage. Patrick says, who are Australia's best five paces for the World Cup? Um, well, Mitchell Stark is probably their best pacer. I would say now that Hazelwood is their second best pacer. Um, in one day cricket, you know, Pat Cummins is still very, very effective, certainly better than he is in, in T20 cricket. Uh, so there's your three. I'd probably have Jai Richardson at four, um, not brilliantly tested, um, but but certainly, you know, very good. And then at, at the fifth one, I suppose you could throw, I, I'd have to have a deeper look at the reserves, but would Spencer Johnson be a chance at the moment? Right? Like, it's possible, isn't it? Uh, we haven't seen him enough in one day cricket. Um, he's not very, very well tested. Um, gives you an extra left arm option. And then, of course, you've got Berendorf, who I think is a very, very good new ball bowler. Um, Alice, who I think is probably more suited to T20 cricket. Um, and then you've got the sort of the older, um, options that have been around for a long time, you know, sort of Richardson and, um, you know, uh, I'm trying to think of some of the other, uh, um, guys that, you know, that have sort of been around or on the fringes a little bit, um, from that perspective. Um, but yeah, I, th- I think, um, I suppose you'd go depending on, oh, I'm trying to think. Berendorf, your best option in India, um, because you know you can swing the ball around nicely for a couple of overs, and Spencer Johnson might need a little bit more pace and bounce in the wicket. I, I don't know. Um, I think those are the guys that I'd be looking at. Also, you know, for the World Cup, Australia has some flexibility now with some of the all-round options that they have available to them as well. Um, so you can maybe take a flyer on someone like Spencer Johnson if you wanted to. 
Ben says, if franchise tournaments implemented a fee that goes to associate countries when their player gets picked, potentially a percentage of their fee goes to the country. I think I wrote about that 14 years ago. <laughs> um, still hasn't happened, but hey, uh, without taking anything from away from the players, and how would that help associate nations? You could argue that this sort of thing could be done right across, you know, all international cricket, not just the associate nations. No, it would be massive. Um, we saw that the county teams got a kickback from uh, county players when they played in the IPL. So that's slightly different to what you're talking about, but a similar kind of thing. But if you think of, um, let's have a look, let's say Scotland or Namibia got in and they got two players into, uh, they had one player who played all around the world and maybe another player who played half the time. And their overall earnings for the year maybe is, let's say, 200,000 pounds or 200,000 US dollars, sorry. And you were saying that you would get 20% of that back, right? And then you've got another player doing half that, maybe playing 100,000. You're now looking at a full-time staff member in, in some cases, you know, maybe even two, maybe two interns that could help you all the way uh, through the year. Um, that a lot of these teams don't have, you know, anyone traveling with them <laughs> outside of a coach maybe an assistant coach maybe one other person like a strength and conditioning or a physio person instantly you know you'd be looking at being able to pay for one extra staff member every year and then if you had a few players playing um it would be huge you know those sorts of things are really really important um the wages that associate teams can pay their staff is quite poor you know everyone's looking for their bigger job all the time um you know, the ability to be able to do that, perhaps the Hawkeye cameras that we were talking about before that go on your chest for the umpires, uh, perhaps some other um, uh, technology that Scottish cricket or Namibian cricket could use, uh, pay for a full-time analyst or maybe pay for like four or five part-time analysts um, uh, to, uh, to get more ideas coming into the, the side all, all the time. All those things would be available under that kind of a system, Ben. Um, it will not happen. Uh, but yeah, all those things are available. Anyway, we'll take a break here on the Uncovered Podcast. I am uh, still Jared Kimber, and I will be back after the break to do a few more Patreon questions. And remember, if you want, if you're in the YouTube um, channel and you're desperate to chat, please uh, send through a super chat. Get ready to take charge of your favorite leagues in Wicket Cricket Manager. Control the game, buy and sell players, and train them to victory. Play against friends, strangers, or challenge yourself. With your cricket knowledge, become the master on the pitch of Wicket Cricket Manager. NFL Sunday Ticket is now on YouTube and YouTube TV, which means that you can stay close to your team even if you don't live in their town. Like, maybe you're a Raven who married a Seahawk who got a job in the land of the Falcons. With NFL Sunday Ticket, you can watch your team's out-of-market Sunday afternoon games no matter where you live because you shouldn't have to change teams even if you change towns. NFL Sunday Ticket, now on YouTube and YouTube TV. Go to youtube.com slash presale to get $50 off. Terms and embargoes apply. Offer ends 919. No refund. Subscription auto renews. Whole Foods Market has savings to power your day during the Kickstart the Season event. Take advantage of a huge sale on all supplements like vitamins, protein powders, probiotics, and more. There's a sale on all packaged coffee to get you back in the groove. Plus, find wallet-happy prices on breakfast like organic eggs and bacon from 365 by Whole Foods Market. And when the week gets busy, bring home a family meal and let the pros do the cooking. Kickstart fall at Whole Foods Market. Terms apply. 
Welcome back to Wagon Wheel. I'm Jared Kimber. Uh, Rudra says, why did Seawag stop getting test hundreds outside of Asia after Adelaide in 2008? Uh, and what made him so successful as a batter? 2008. I mean, how much of that is just age? What, you know, how, how old was Verinda Seawag in 2008? Yeah, it gets to 30. Really, really interesting. Um, you know, that, that's an age where um, perhaps he started to slow down. He, he played a very high-risk game, right? And I don't think that necessarily means that in the conditions that were favoring him, he might have struggled a little bit more. But you can certainly see how in conditions that weren't favoring him, there would be some certain issues there. Also, just very basic things of um, he only needs to slip slightly in conditions that don't favor him as much, and he suddenly becomes a much bigger target. You know, the word starts to spread around as well. Um, but I don't have any great answer to that. Um, and whose bowling is better, his or Dan Lawrence's? I don't think Dan Lawrence is a particularly good bowler. Um, I'd have to go back and, you know, try and remember uh, Sewag's foot. I, I, I felt like Sewag was one of those guys who, probably rightly, but, you know, got to a certain point where bowling didn't really matter to him anymore. Um, perhaps, he, you know, l- like what happens to a lot of them, he just got a little bit older. Um, I'm just trying to bring it up. So uh, in, he bowled 3,700 balls, took 40 wickets, an average of 47. Oh, his record's a little bit worse than a, what, I, what I thought. Um, I would say that Dan Lawrence to take 40 wickets feels like a bit of a stretch, but it's a different kind of age and play, people play spinners a little bit differently and they specifically play part-timers a lot differently than I think what would happen in those days. Th- there's a reason we have less part-timers now than we used to and it's because when they've done all the number crunching, it doesn't quite make as much sense to uh, bowl a part-timer. So now when Lawrence is bowling, it's either absolute last chance to learn or the conditions are in his favour. There are probably times when Sewag was bowling just just to rest people. Just, you know, uh, it, it's the 70th over uh there's not the ball's not really reverse swinging we've only got one other specialist uh, spinner in our team you know can you bowl your overs out here that really doesn't happen as much anymore you know fitness of bowlers has got a lot better the way that we use them has got a a little bit smarter um and that kind of part-time thing doesn't exist anymore um so yeah it's um i would think he was a better bowler i would i'd rather i'd probably prefer to face lawrence than i would say why if if that I don't know why that's a new metric that we're using, but it is. Uh, James says, can you give me some examples of test teams, in your opinion, had a fairly t- had fairly ordinary talent, but overachieved due to brilliant captaincy and on or off field leadership? Um, well, I mean, everything New Zealand did to structure their team better, you know, between 2012 um, all the way through to 2021, probably got the absolute most out of a talented group of players, but not, you know, they didn't have the same level of talent available to them that Australia, England, India, South Africa, Pakistan might have had in that period, and yet they won the World Test Championship. Um, so that's certainly a, a test team that went above and beyond. I think the New Zealand team, again, in the 80s, is another really interesting one of, of probably... Um, outperforming their talent as a unit. Um, New, Ze- uh, New Zealand. Uh, Sri Lanka of the 90s essentially have two bowlers, right? Late 90s, two bowlers um, and start to win test matches. It's very hard to win test matches with two bowlers, even if one of them's merely, you know, to do that consistently. And Arjuna obviously had a, a you know a big play in, in, in that side of things. 
I'm trying to think if historically um, that's the case. I suppose you could say that England winning body line against Australia is is a is a perfect example of a situation where um, not that they're an ordinary team, but they probably weren't as talented um, as Australia, and yet you know one theory sort of completely uh, threw um, uh, them off. I'm trying to think if there's any other teams. I'm, I feel like there's a Pakistan team that I'm missing, but I can't think of any sort of tactic. Or I mean, Pakistan. I think when Pakistan got really good a few years ago, you know, it was on the back. I think Misbah changed the way that a lot of their cricketers thought about cricket. There was a a version of professionalism that had come into the game that hadn't been there before. You know, the push-ups at Lords and all that sort of stuff was was Misbah saying, you know, the fitness matters, guys. You know, all these sorts of things. So I do think that might be another one. Um, and when you look back at that side, they weren't a spectacular side. They were good, but I don't think that, you know, did they have Wahab and Rahad Ali um, and they won a test match in England? Like, you know, they were not a fantastic test bowling side by any nature and to come to England and beat them, uh, even if it wasn't the greatest England side, is is something. Um, and they obviously had a lot of other success, got to number one in the world at that time. Um, they were v- much better at home um, and maybe they, they rode the glory is of Yassir Shah a little bit there as well. Niran says, what do you make of Jonathan Trott's explanation of them not being informed by the match officials about a net run rate situation? Isn't that the team management job to figure that out, especially when most viewers at home knew what was going on? Okay, so I've been in this situation before. Uh, when you work for a team as an analyst, one thing that you have to keep an eye on is the net run rate. When you get to halfway through a tournament or a season or you know whatever it may be, that's when you start to turn your eyes to it a little bit more. If you look at it and you realize it won't matter, it's not going to make any difference unless we tie a game or, or you know have a bunch of washouts, you probably don't. You just keep it behind you. Um, but you do need to have it. So I, I know that we had one for um, uh, when Scotland was playing the Netherlands. There was something we had to win the game in some preposterously short period of time. Um, and because of that, I ha- I remember making one up at that stage. And then perhaps I thought maybe the then it was the UAE game. Yeah, so it might have just been the Netherlands game that I had to worry about it. But I had I had to set it up myself. I had my own spreadsheet that I made. I had to work out things like how you work out the decimal places and everything because uh, there are six balls in and over. Uh, and it didn't quite mathematically. I had to work out which way the ICC uh, were, were doing it j- just to be as careful as possible. But then at any stage, I could put in you know, the, the, ch- the totals, the changing totals. Um, and I could, you know, a- have a look at that and, and, and tell our team what we needed to do um, uh, in that situation. We ended up losing that game badly, partly because we were trying to win it, you know, so brutally. Um, it never occurred to me to ask the ICC how to do that because why would they have a statistician at the ground whose job it was to do that? We would have had stuff on the TV but at, we were at UA, we were in the UAE, and I wouldn't have had a TV screen in front of me. They would have had one back in the change room. Um, but again, you know, people are not using it for that sort of stuff. I, if I had it, and I'm trying to think, there might have been another game I had it for, maybe at St. Lucia, uh, where there was a TV um, uh, explanation of. I can't remember what the situation was in this, but yeah, um, it's the same as I had. I don't. I haven't used it in a while. But when I was an analyst, I also had my own version of Duckworth Lewis. Now, the teams would give you all that sort of stuff. Uh, sorry, the ICC does give you all that sort of stuff. All the people who are running the tournament do give you that sort of stuff. But again, I didn't want to be given a Duckworth Lewis calculation that was slightly wrong. 
I wanted to know exactly what it was um, at all times so I could have it on my computer. Laurie Colliver, the famous South Australian analyst and uh, Fox Sports um, employee occasionally. And does he work for Seven as well? I oh, know, he works for everyone, Laurie. Um, he, he gave me that years ago. Um, so, I, so I had that. I'm making my own spreadsheets. So I don't know exactly what happened here, but I don't understand why they thought that that information should be given to them because that was never, when I was an analyst for a team, I always made sure that I knew exactly the situation myself. And I'd rather do the maths, like like in a situation like the, the Netherlands net room rate, I must have done the maths on that like 12 different times. I just kept doing it and kept doing it. I did different ways to make sure I would come up with the same answers over and over and over again so I knew exactly that I was correct. Even if someone from the IC, and that was an ICC tournament, obviously, and this one's not an ICC tournament, so I don't even know why there would be anyone from the ICC there to pass this on. But um, even if um, someone had handed me a piece of paper, I would have used that to match the two. And if there was a discrepancy, I would have gone back to the start and, um, and, and done it from scratch again. So I don't know what happened here. Um, I didn't see the game live. I was following it. Shyam was sending me messages. And, and Ari, I think, on our WhatsApp group, we're going nuts over it. So I was kind of following that way. And obviously, have, I did hear Jonathan Trott's um, explanation. If this is what he thought was going to happen, that just sounds like to me someone who hasn't been a senior coach that often, um, which he hasn't. Like, he, you know, he was an assistant coach quite a bit, you know, batting consultant, all these things. But the analyst should have been, I mean, no one ever asked me to do it. It was just something that I did on my own. And I would assume that most analysts do that um, and have that as a situation available to them at any one time. Why that didn't happen here, I don't know. Um, and I, I can't tell you the full reasons. All I can tell you is that I would have had a spreadsheet available to me to put all the different numbers in at any one stage and be able to tell what that situation was. Rudra says, are you surprised by how quickly India moved on from Shikadawan? It feels like in T20, he got really good around the time they discarded him. In ODIs, he was amazing for a long time before um, a little bit of poor form, and now he's out permanently. Uh, uh, look, I think that Shikadawan is the kind of player that they just created a lot of, and when they had to get rid of an anchor, he was the most disposable player that they had available to him. I don't think it helped that just as they were moving on from him, he suddenly started got, uh, getting a lot better and being the sort of player that would have helped them beforehand. It's kind of a little bit maybe too late from that point of view. I think he's a, obviously he's a very good one-day player. But again, I th if, if you look at the way that they want to play, I don't think his style necessarily fits in. We're, we're, uh, he's a really interesting player. And I've done a big thing on him, Rudra, a couple of years ago on his T20 cricket. He's a really interesting player in that if he is your seventh or eighth best player, um, you're probably in a fairly good position as a team. But if you are the seventh or eighth best player and you start to get old or, you know, other players come up, the team will move on from you fairly quickly. And I think in this case, they just thought that they had other options available to them that can do the same jobs. And that's probably fair. Um, the old days of batting really slowly in the power play, chipping it around a little bit more and then hopefully slogging once you get over 100 are probably gone. And that was Shikadawan's probably best ODI template. Having said that, he did change his T20 cricket, as you said, so perhaps they went too soon on him. I'm not sure. Bloody Bugger says, I started watching the Premier League because of how terribly cricket has been run. This meaningless Asia Cup is a perfect example. I realized that the exclusion of the working class of England in cricket is due to latter government decisions. But even from the early days, I don't think there is a cricket equivalent to West Ham Arsenal um, that became huge. Uh, did cricket exclude the working class even from the very start? 
Well, no, because the working class built the game. So, no, it was a street game. It was a gambling game. It's really when Hambledon comes along in cricket um, where things start to change. They write the laws up, of course. They have the first books written about them. They essentially are lords before there is lords, um, you know, despite the fact that Hambledon's a tiny little place in the middle of nowhere. Um, that's when it really starts to become owned by the people. And look, uh, sorry, by the rich people. I would say that there is a fundamental difference in the two sports as well. If you're an amateur football player, outside of being a goalkeeper, you're probably going to have to run a bit, right? Whereas if you're an amateur cricketer, especially in the 1800s, you could probably just use a really big bat and boss a bunch of um, underarm bowling around. Um, and so it was perhaps a sport, you know, and, and cricket has changed a lot since then, but it was certainly a sport at that stage, perhaps slightly for more lazy people who didn't want to work as hard. And look what they did in, in, in cricket. They ba basically made all the poor people bowl, right? <laughs> it's, you know, I love it when I see an old amateur who's a great bowler because um, you're like, yeah, power to the people. Um, but it's very rare. <laughs> There's a lot, of, a lot of them are batters. So I think that in football, that would be just be a harder thing to hide yourself. And, you know, you, you know, you, could you be a non-playing captain, you know, which we had in cricket, right? We had guys who weren't particularly good at batting or bowling and, and still played um, in, in the top level of cricket, in, in first-class cr cricket. Can't really do that in football, right? Again, um, it would be a harder thing to be able to sell. It's a faster moving sport, all these different things. So I think that, you know, in that perspective, that was part of it. But there's no doubt between 1780 and 1850 that the amateur rich side of England really take over the game. Um, it's not to say that there aren't professionals out there. You go and listen to Double Century. We talked about some of those early professional teams. Um, you know, obviously there were professional tours to England, uh, to Australia from England. Um, the, there were teams that had fewer professionals, uh, sorry, fewer amateurs, um, and everything like that, but you don't get those sorts of, um, you know, even in Yorkshire, you, you, you go back in Lancashire, Durham went around at that stage, but those Northern sorts of teams, there's always a strong amateur push within them. Um, and even, you know, you know, so Yorkshire is probably the most famous of the, the teams that I suppose is more what you're talking about. Um, but if I'm not mistaken, let me just find him. Uh, so, so your, uh, so Yorkshire is that sort of team that, you know, we hear a lot about the mines and, you know, the professionals that came up from Yorkshire. Um, but if I'm not mistaken, um, yeah, Lord Hawk. Um, so to make sure um, was obviously a huge figure in Yorkshire cricket so you can imagine Lord Hawke uh, probably didn't do as much uh, work in the mines as some of the other Yorkshire players had uh, would be my guess uh, without knowing his full background um, but so there were slightly more working class teams but the amateur thing was so strong at that point um, that you know and I've just done a podcast with Raph Nicholson that'll be out in a couple of weeks it was even stronger in women's cricket so it really was an issue that cricket had to deal with. Um, I mean, I think looking back, tennis had it as well. Um, rugby, obviously, rugby union certainly had it as well. So there are, it wasn't just cricket. It would be unfair to say that. And football did, football has grown very differently than every other sport in the world. 
I don't think there's even like a mini version of football. Like basketball is another similar kind of sport um, that is very, very global and played by a lot of different countries. But I wouldn't say that basketball specifically grew in the way that football did. Um, uh, certainly, you know, it took basketball a lot longer from, from when international teams start really playing football to when international teams get decent at football seems to be a lot quicker than it was for basketball where it does take a, a lot longer for that to happen. So certainly from that perspective, football is different to most sports, I think, in almost every way. Neron says, if a similar situation to the Sri Lanka-Afghanistan game occurs in the World Cup, whereas, uh, where it is okay for a team to lose but not by a large margin, is that a valid strategy to forfeit the game or is there a fail-safe for that? I don't believe there is a fail-safe for that. I think if you want to see the... Uh, I don't know if the highlights of this game are online, um, but I will probably uh, be trying to find them shortly. I remember watching this game live, which was the 1996 World Cup game between Australia and the West Indies. Is that the game? Where Michael Bevan and Steve Waugh purposely bat slow? Was it in 99? I'm trying to remember. I remember watching the, the game anyway. Um, uh, and they were essentially trying to gerrymander the results by batting really, really slowly. Um, in fact, I'm just going to whip over to the comments if anyone can remember what that game was. But yeah, there's, there's a game where Australia could have finished it in, I don't know, 30 or 35 overs and Bevan and Steve Ward just block and block and block for what, what felt like forever uh, watching the, the game back. Um, it was probably two of the slowest innings that either of those guys ever, ever play. Um, and intentionally, of course, um, you know, and I think that's the only one I've ever seen in a World Cup that has been that blatant. But we've certainly seen teams do little things that are quite blatant before. Um, I can't think of any. Um, I can't think of any other situation where a team has maybe tried. I, I can't think of any t situation where a team has tried to lose. I do think that will be something that we will start to see um, in the future. Uh, here it is. No World Cup. Found it. So. I was working at the time, actually. I remember I was working in a factory. So West Indies off their 50 overs make 110 runs. Australia win that with 56 balls remaining. So Steve Moore makes 19 of 73 balls and Michael Bevan makes 20 of 69 balls. And my memory was that it was something to do with affecting, I, I want to say, New Zealand's net run rate. Um, but, I, but I can't remember the full story um, off the top of my head. I'd have to go back in and have a look at it. So it has happened before. There isn't a failsafe. The failsafe, of course, is playing multiple games. The last round robin games should be played at the same time to stop all these sorts of things. That happen. What a real sport would do, to be fair, even real sports don't always do this um, all the way as well. But that's what you should be trying to do in, in proper sports is, is make sure that you can't have these sorts of um, silly situations. But sadly, that's not the sport that we live in. Um, we couldn't possibly have two games at the same time or four games at the same time. Although, when the World Cup started, we used to have four, four games um, uh, on one day. Uh, and Vivek says, uh, do you think that cricket will have a mic communication between the players on the field and the coaching staff? So we've already had that, Vivek. Uh, Bob Woolmer and Hatsi Kronia tried it, and it was obviously banned. Um, or do you think the current methods of exchange of information were reasonably well? I mean, the current methods of exchange of information work terribly. <laughs> um, so, so certainly, if you want that to be better, I think we have a unique situation where we essentially have an on-field coach 
far more than um, I heard Mina Coombs, uh, Mina Coombs, Mina Coombs um, saying the other day that the NFL, uh, NFL quarterback is maybe the most contextual position in sport, whereas a cricket captain is even more contextual, right? You know, it, the, everyone who's around you um, is the reason that you are good or bad, um, even if we don't always look at it that way. And a quarterback is talking to their offensive um, uh, uh, coach when they're on the field. They're also off the field half the time, right? So lots of conversations in, in, in that way as well. Look, there's two ways of looking at it. Do we want the best possible decision made by the team all the time? Then I think your way of doing it would be much better. As someone who's been an analyst who's seen teams make mistakes, I'd love to be able to say to the captain, no, 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 no. please don't do that. Um, uh, but we are then losing something that is really, really unique to cricket, right? Um, that we have an on-field coach who makes strategic decisions. And yes, there's some off-field messages passed back and forward, but on a ball-by-ball basis, there's no way you can get that much information across. So it's a unique sport from that perspective. Um, it just depends on what you like. I probably prefer, you know, the more information that a captain can have, the better. Um, but it does change what cricket is at that point, which is very, very fair if, if some people uh, don't like that. I uh, thank you again to everyone uh, for those questions. Uh, very much enjoyed them. Uh, let us take a quick break on Uncovered and then we'll come back and I'll see if there is anything in the room that I need to mop up. You're watching or listening to Uncovered with Jared Kimber. All right. Uh, let us see what we have in the in the chat. We don't have any super chats at the moment. So Mana says, which two players of a of a generation, of any generation, uh, could benefit from playing uh, for the other country? Uh, Pajara to Australia. Uh, career graph, legacy, and earnings would all be around uh, the same or differ massively. Um, well, yeah. I mean, there would be lots of different. Uh, I mean, I won't get into the earnings because that one's a bit uh, weird. Pajara to Australia. So where is... Yeah, if he's batting translates to Australia, if he's going to make 20 of 120 balls over and over again, I think that makes more sense for a touring side. So his batting would have to transfer. The players that you're really talking about is, you know, Colin Croft and Sylvester Clark and Roddy Eswick and um, who are some of the other West Indian quicks I'm, I'm missing. Um, you know, those sorts of guys. Uh, you know, in India, it would have been, um, uh, you know, the third and fourth spinners of the quartet. Um, make a case that Adam Gilchrist would have played a lot more test cricket had he played with anyone else because he would have played well earlier um, when he was far younger. Um, Stuart McGill, you know, so you really look at those sorts of backup players, aren't you? Um, that would have would have been very, very different. Um, oh, there's a really good Indian. Uh, Raidu. Raidu is another one, you know, um, uh, Stuart Law, Martin Love, um, perhaps even someone like Jamie Siddons. If you slot Jamie Siddons into New Zealand, he probably becomes one of their best batters of all time. So, yeah, I think there's a few different options uh, from that perspective that would go across. Um, it's, that's usually what you're looking at. If you're looking for players who are in the team and would be better in other places, well, I mean, half the Asian seamers and half the Western spinners would probably quite happily switch over and have much better records um, <laughs> if they could play um, in more helpful conditions. So I certainly think those those things. Uh, Darren Lehman would have been a really interesting one. Darren Lehman probably was a batter who was at his best, perhaps in English conditions or Asian conditions, and played in Australia. Um, so I think he would have been 
much better had he not been um, in, not that he was bad in Australia, but I think he was just better in those other places. So, you know, there would be, I'm trying to think if there are any other like sort of obvious players um, that have those kinds of skill sets. You know, I don't know, maybe someone like Neil Harvey is another one, you know, who's a fantastic player of spin. Um, but yeah, I think there's a lot that you know in in that way would be very very uh changed i don't i don't know if pajara would be one at the top of my list um from that kind of perspective um rahane would have been a really interesting batter in english conditions consistently right during a period where they where they struggled for those kinds of players um uh, would given him a whole new set of fans uh to complain about uh to complain about him uh, well, <laughs> um all right Sean has come through with a super chat. I am too young to remember South Africa coming out of isolation. What did the world expect of them in their first couple of years? They were quite hyped up for the 92 World Cup, Sean. So that was that was the one where we knew they had all-round options. Um, we knew that they had experienced uh, county players. There was clearly no, I don't think anyone was massively worried about the talent. You know, I, you know, Kepler Wessels played in 92 World Cup, I think, for them. Uh, was he back by then? I think he was. Um, you know, so they had some players that were well respected. So there was a thought that they would be handy. They probably slightly overperformed in, in ODI towards the overall hype. But I remember everyone thinking that there was something there when they came back in. And I, th- I think that was certainly uh, the way that people looked at it. Um, test cricket, I suppose after that 92 World Cup, there was a thought process that they were a pretty good team. And that led the way to everyone sort of believing that, you know, this was going to be a decent side. They, again, maybe slightly overperformed the hype. Um, you, one thing I would say, Sean, is you've got to remember that cricket didn't exist back then the way it does now. So you can make a very big argument that I'm the first global cricket writer who has written, who wrote about all different teams professionally, you know, consistently and so back in 92 you had newspaper writers and they're more interested especially if you get the world cup the world cup is slightly different because everyone's coming up to town so you, you know you have your you have some interest in the teams uh, all, all the teams but otherwise you're only interested in the teams as they come out to play you specifically for test matches so the world cup is what i remember that doesn't mean that people didn't think that they were a good test team as well it just what i would say is that it wasn't the way that the game was reported on at that stage. Um, but there was a little bit of hype. I don't think anyone had them down. I think it, people had them down as a potential, um, what's the best way to put it? I think people had them as a potential semi-finalist, um, but perhaps not, you know, the level of semi-finalist that they got to you know, maybe o- exceeded a little bit. I'd have to go back and have a look at the odds, but obviously Australia, uh, people would have expected Australia to do better. They would have expected West Indies to do better. So, um, they would have been in in a bracket slightly lower than those sides. You know, Australia was in the middle of revolutionising one-day cricket um, uh, and had a terrible tournament. Uh, West Indies won the first two tournaments, should have won the third tournament, not that bad in the fourth tournament, still came to the fifth and even, even 96, they still came with really, really strong teams. And so, you know, I don't think anyone would have thought that South Africa was a better team than them. So maybe they were ranked around the fifth or sixth best time coming into into that um that's that's my memory but as i said writing wasn't really like that at that stage so um it would have been slightly different aditya says you mentioned four spinners um 
to do well in India, that they need more spin. In Australia, more bounce. How do you explain the success of Kumble and Harbhajan in India? Um, both who had more um, who had more bounce and no side spin. Um, firstly, there's a different way of bowling um, spin, Aditya. And thank you for your super chat, sorry, as well. There's specifically a different way of bowling um, spin in Australia. So if you watch Harbhajan getting more bounce in India, he's still attacking the stumps with that extra bounce. So if you go back and you have a look, he's bowling wide of the stumps and he's bowling this angle into um, the stumps. It's a very different kind of um, uh, uh, bowling. And then what he's hoping for is because he is putting overspin on the ball, he's hoping for the occasional ball um, to take off uh, and get a little bit of glove as well, keeping the stumps in play. So it's a very different kind of... uh, If you look at Nathan Lyon, he's bowling very close to the stumps He's, he's bowling the ball away um, from the stumps a little bit and then bringing it back in. So he's bowling for a little bit of extra bounce, but he's looking for catches that slip specifically. Um, and then when the ball rips and turns, um, he has the ability to either, you know, perhaps get a bold or an LBW, but probably not that many LBWs. Traditionally, the way he's bowled, he's slightly changed of recent times, but also then getting the overspin to be able to get, you know, a little bit of glove or in, or anything. But, what I would say is if you look at, I've watched Harbhajan Singh and, and Nathan Lyon bowl from side on, there's no comparison for the amount of um, overspin that the two men put on the ball. Harbhajan put a little bit of overspin on the ball and for an Asian spinner, probably more so than most. Nothing, absolutely nothing compared to the amount that Nathan Lyon puts on. So there's a very, very big difference there. Anil Kumble didn't get extra bounce because of his, um, his spin. Uh, because he didn't put masses of revolutions on the ball. I think he got more b- uh, bounce because he had a very, very tall action and he was very upright when he came through the crease. Um, the problem with Anil Kumble is that if you look at Nathan Lyon or Shane Warne, um, I'm trying to think of, I mean, that's about basically it for about 40 years of Australian spinners. But if you look at the Australian spinners who are successful, it is a combination of the spin and the bounce. And I think Kumble's problem uh, was that. The other thing that you need to factor in is that Australians are brilliant players of spin in Australia. And it is a different kind of playing spin in Australia than it is anywhere else. Um, I, I've noticed as someone who's moved from Australia to England, I play spin very differently in England than I ever did in Australia. Um, and you know, p- part of it is the way I move my feet. Um, and and, and it, you know, the, whole, the whole game plan and how I defend and, uh, and everything else, the, especially where I keep my hands. Um, all those things have changed quite a bit about the way I play spin in Australia to England. And Australians play spin in Australia brilliantly. So if you go through, there are, I'm trying to think of someone else, there are probably people who've got even more bounce and even more overspin than, than the two guys you're talking about who just didn't take a lot of wickets um, in Australia as, as spinners. And I do think a big part of it is because Australia plays spin very well at home. The other thing is that the pitches, there's a big difference from saying someone gets o- some overspin on the ball and someone being a natural overspin bowler. And I, and I think there is, there's a huge amount of, um, you know, Nathan Lyon has outbowled Ashwin probably head to head in Australia over their entire careers when they've both been playing in Australia. No one thinks that Lyon is a better bowler than Ashwin, right? But Lyon knows exactly how to bowl um, spin in Australia. And if you, Think about it. When you're coming to Australia, how often do you talk about how the spinners need to change what they do and how they do it and everything else? And generally what happens is if that if you do hear that from a spinner, usually what they do is they try and bowl quicker 
And that doesn't particularly help that much in Australia because it just sort of skids onto the bat and you play a little bit more like a medium pacer. Um, and so I, I do think that there is a, it's such a different kind of art that maybe, and this is a really random thing to say, but if cricket was more professional, if you were going to Australia, what you would really be doing is looking for Australian experts in, in, in spin bowling and how to bowl there to help your spinners. And I've never heard of that happening before. Maybe McGill did it for a team who toured Australia once. And he's not exactly like other Australian spinners either because he doesn't get any overspin. He's almost completely a side spin bowler, although that's more the case with the wrist spinners than the, um, than the finger spinners in Australia at times. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's a complicated issue. Um, but I, I do think that, I mean, if you were to go back on it, I think the lack of lateral spin that Harbhajan and, and Kumble got in Australia didn't help them. Because if you talk about Nathan Lyon, you were talking about a combination of both of those things. It is the spinning the ball um, sideways and also getting overspin at the same time, which he probably would have had to have done in Australia because if he just did one or the other, he wouldn't have made it through. In fact, if you look at Nathan Lyon and Will Somerville, Summerfield, the New Zealand spinner who actually was brought up, you know, bowling a lot in Sydney, played first class cricket for New South Wales. The difference between the two of those is they both actually get a lot of overspin on the ball, but, but Lyon gets a bit of side spin with it as well. So I do think that it is, slightly more um different uh, a different way of thinking about it also bowling at the stumps in australia doesn't help as much because if and you see i see a lot of asian spinners come to australia and they bowl stump to stump because that makes sense that's where you generally bowl graham swan even not even an asian spinner bowling you know attacking the stumps like they do at home the, the problem is in australia you get extra bounce and it means quite often you're bowling onto the knee roll or onto the hip and I remember years ago watching English spinners come to Australia and just get milked to square leg all day. Um, whereas that, that shot is a little bit more dangerous on, on a pitch where LBW is, is an option. Uh, great question, though. Uh, great couple of questions there from Sean as well. Just let me see if there was anything else in the room. Uh, oh, this, I think this is just um, Aditya just adding on to that last question, which I'll just say. Why did they take less questions? Oh, now he's done it as a super chat. He's all over the shop. Uh, I think she says, why were they good in India despite no side spin? Like, so there's, in India, you're keeping the stumps in play all the time. So you've always got a chance of LBW and bowl. And in India, you don't need to put as many revs on the ball to get the ball to spin, which allows you to bowl a little bit quicker. And because of that, if you're bowling a little bit quicker and you're only getting, let's say, let's look, Kumble, let's say he's getting like an inch and an inch and a half of, of, of deviation, right? He's now doing that at a much faster pace. And so that inch and an inch and a half allows him to bowl a little bit quicker, a little bit more direct, as someone like Gareth Batty would say, or Bill O'Reilly would say. Um, and, and at that stage, um, it's harder for you to react to. If you bowl quicker spin in Australia, and everyone since Bill O'Reilly, essentially, outside of you know, a little bit of part-time success for Colin, well, Colin Mill, not quite a part-timer, but Michael Bevan. Almost all the fastest spinners in Australia have struggled because you can't get the purchase in Australia if you bowl quicker. So if you look at Australia's two most successful spinners since Bill O'Reilly, it's Nathan Lyon and it's um, Shane Warne. Both of them are, even for their eras, a little bit slower than other spinners, right? In, in Asia, especially in India, and you certainly get this in Sri Lanka, I'm trying to think of some of the other, that maybe even Bangladesh would be another one. You can actually afford to bowl, suspend the ball less because the pitch will do a lot of the work for you, right? So in that situation, what you're actually doing is you're, 
you're bowling a little bit quicker, a little bit more direct in, into the surface. Um, and you don't need to put as many revolutions on the ball. So the ball doesn't slow down as much as it goes through. Australia is almost completely the opposite from that perspective. So in we see spinners, you know, UAE was another perfect example of a place where you knew you were going to get a base level of spin as long as you put revolutions on the ball. So you could afford to be a little bit quicker. That suddenly brings in, you, you can't use your feet as much, right? When that ball spins the one and a half, two inches, it's now spinning at a much faster rate as well. So you're having to react to that. On top of that, think about especially Indian pitchers, Shlunken pitches a little bit as well, but Indian pitches are famous for just almost falling apart at the end. If you're bowling really quick and slightly quicker through the air, um, which uh, you know, which is m- more a Indian style of spin bowling, you know, not everyone. Pish and Beatty was a very slow spinner, but if you if you look through, there's a lot of Indian spinners who are just that little bit quick, quicker all the way through history. Now the ball keeps a little bit low, you're in trouble, and everything else. You're not being able to do that specifically in a place like Australia because you won't get any sideways movement for the ball. And also, if you, the less revolutions you put on the ball in Australia, you won't get as much overspin or sideways movement, right? And so you're now bowling dead straight deliveries. Whereas if you go back to Bill O'Reilly and even some of the England spinners who had um, uh, success in Australia, they could bowl a little bit quicker in those situations because there was uncovered wickets. The minute you move to covered wickets in Australia, the revolutions become the absolutely the most things. Um, uh, uh, from from that perspective, um, so yeah, brilliant, absolutely brilliant. Um, follow up as well, and thank you as well. Um, uh, from uh, from Aditya there on his two super chats. Last two questions. Rebel Wisdom says, when you talk about the wobble, one thing I don't understand is why it would take so long to invent. It seems like one of the most obvious ways to use the seam. So it didn't take that long to invent because from the first time anyone tried to swing the ball, they would probably bowl a wobble ball. What we couldn't see is the slow motion of it to actually understand why it was successful and why it wasn't successful. Sean Pollock and Courtney Walsh certainly had wobble balls. And I would say all the way back through history, we would have seamers who probably a bolder delivery. It's the, the difference of Muhammad Asif and Stuart Clark and then Jimmy Anderson as they come through. We now have a super slow motion to be able to see not only the success and why it has success and then the, the ability to be able to do that, then the ability to be able to teach other people. Right. So everyone has always had that. The other big difference was Rebel is that this was a um, uh, this was a situation that for a very very long time cricket was a swing dependent. You need the seam to be straight for swing. So the wobble ball actually doesn't ha- help swing bowling as well as we've seen. Swing bowling is is struggling um, over the last couple of years because everyone is bowling the wobble ball and it's hard to go between the two as well as we now also found out so when bowling was swing dependent you wanted the scene to be dead straight as we've moved and the west indians helped this and then obviously you know uh, glenn mcgrath and drs and all these different things have helped move us towards um seam bowling suddenly the wobble ball got more important and i don't think it's a mistake that you know that starts to happen um you know, about 15 or so years after the West Indies get good. And it also happens to be the combination of the the, the cameras. Um, so I hope that one all makes sense. Uh, Juggling Geek says, we can keep it standing a long way back to modern pace bowlers. Will we start to see batters running buys to the keeper more often? Like Bearstow and Anderson did in the Ashes. Yeah, I, I think, I don't think we could keep his practice rolling the ball along the ground well enough in high pressure situations in training, especially on match days. Um, Look, we've already started. We and you could say it's it's been coming for a long time, twenty or thirty years of of that happening. The further we could keep us get back, you know, 
especially in maybe pitches like in Australia where there's an actual pace and carry, so you back even further again. I can certainly see see that being a an option for teams. I wonder if uh, this is it, it is something that is actually slowed down a little bit by um, mancats. Because I do think you probably need to be running from almost the moment the ball leaves the hand to be able to do that. Um, but I think in the future, it was a little, a little bit like how how catchers in baseball um, have to have a strong throwing arm to, is it second base, I think? I do think going forward, we might see teams looking for wicket keepers who are very good at the ability to do that. Of course, the other option is standing up towards the end for certain, you know, maybe not express bowlers, but we're already seeing teams try a little bit more of having the wicketkeeper up. I know that's largely to do with more test cricket of recent times, but will that be another skill? Can you keep up the stumps for 88 mile an hour to 90 mile an hour bowler for a few deliveries? I I don't know is is the best answer. Also, slow balls make that even trickier, I would have thought, for the wicketkeepers. Drivet says, your opinion on extras by the fielding side. Oh, Drivet, I don't exactly know what you mean there, but you've sent a super chat, so uh, feel free to uh, ex- expand on that. Um, so we, th- I think there's been a movement that some people believe that uh, leg buys shouldn't go towards the bowlers, um, for instance. Um, that That's certainly one. Um, we used to have it that I don't know how many people know this, but it used to be that no balls didn't go towards the bowlers, which seems like the weirdest one, especially because wides went towards the bowlers. Um, uh, so yes, I'm not exactly sure what you mean by your question there, Drew, but thank you very much for asking it. But if, if you do get a chance to um, add anything else into it, um, I think that having done analysis on, uh, and this might be slightly different to what you mean, but having done analysis on it, the teams with the most extras don't always lose games. And so if that's what you're thinking of, um, it's not as good a um, uh, predictor for for winning as you would think. And I think partly that is because there are a lot of teams who do bowl intentional wides towards the end to just keep the ball out of someone's hitting arc as much as possible. Um, and so that's certainly a part of it. I think, though, that when you do see extras, it, it usually leads to sloppier teams, right? Um we have a look at England in the first couple of Ashes tests of especially the amount of, you know, buys that were let, let through. You kind of, you didn't need the, the whole thing about Bairstow dropping catches. You don't really need that if he's a- allowing as many buys. Um, and also we look at buys slightly incorrectly. We look at them as a total. It really should be the amount of fumbles by a keeper that we are keeping. Um, whether Because if you fumble it and you drop it at your feet and they don't take any runs, it doesn't count as a buy. And because they haven't hit it, it doesn't matter. But actually, that that is a sign of bad wicket keeping. And the more information we have on all that sort of stuff does um, come in. So I do think that that is a um, uh, I, I do think that is an issue um, overall um, when it comes to uh, wicket keeping. Um, but yeah, I'm not exactly sure what your question means, Drew. It, but uh, I, I'm fascinated by extras. Um, <laughs> Uh, and was more than happy to finish the podcast talking about them. Anyway, that's the end of Wagon Wheel. Remember, please go and um, subscribe to all of our channels. The, the one that you, if, if you subscribe to everything, like Jared, I've left your review on iTunes and, you know, I've done, I've subscribed to you on, um, what's it called? Spotify. And, you know, I've subscribed to your main channel, Jared Kimber podcast channel. We really want to get to a point in the future where, you know, there are multiple hours of a day where we have, 
content going out there, you know, live chats with people, you know, the ability to uh, get sponsors on that channel, but also super chats on that channel and everything else is what will eventually drive that sort of thing so that, you know, we can make the podcasts out of the content that we are currently making um, and everything else. Um, uh, Oh, Drew, he's just come back to us and he said, I did mean how much of a win predictor. Yeah, so it's not, it's not as big of a win predictor in T20 cricket. I haven't looked at it in one-day cricket, Drew, and I haven't looked at it in test cricket. But it's not as big a predictor in, in uh, T20 cricket because let's say you're playing a bunch of players who all just like to drag the ball from outside off to the leg side for sixes. Chances are you will have more wides in that game intentionally because you're trying to bowl as wide as possible to them. But it's a proper tactic, right? You're not, you're not trying to necessarily bowl wides, right? But you're trying to keep it as, as wide as possible in, in that way. So I don't think it predicts as much um, uh, in, in that kind of way. But great, great question as well. Um, uh, but thank, uh, thank you for that. Uh, but yeah, uh, Jared Kimball Podcast Network. We are working on a big series at the moment and we, we had a big meeting for our World Cup stuff We've got an absolute ton of World Cup stuff that we'll be working on before the tournament and then also during the tournament as well. So um, stay here um, and for as long as possible, uh, we will we will be doing stuff. We don't know what our full World Cup plan is at the moment. I know a lot of people have been asking me about that. Uh, we may go back to the mood boards, which is like a live um, show about bunches of different topics that we did during the last T20 World Cup. Um, it may be just uh, our normal videos as well. But uh, thank you to everyone for your support. And I will see you again uh, next week when we come back for Uncovered. Thanks for listening. This podcast has an ad-free version via Patreon, where there are many other extras as well, including a Discord channel. There's a link to those in the show notes. Please review, subscribe, and tell all your friends about our show. Word of mouth is the best way of making our podcast grow. If we had a guest on, chances are their socials are in the show notes. Please support everyone who comes on this show. I am Jared Kimber, and this is my network. But we also have hosts and co-hosts like Barat Sundaresan and Bayram Kazi. This network is overseen by Nick McCorriston. Each episode is produced by Ishit Kuberka at Sound Potion Studio. The team from 42 help us out with the video side. Orijoti Sainapayi and Maida Akam, both producing podcasts, while Mukunda Bandredi is the head of our YouTube content. If you are a podcaster who happens to waffle on and you need a way to cut down your long-form content, Memento FM is here to save the day. They turn your lengthy media into bite-sized chunks for even the most time-starved audience. Start using Memento FM today. Podcast Network.